0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by Cobus van Staden in Cape Town, South Africa. Cobus, you are, in fact, in Cape Town today, right? Because you've been traveling this week.
1: Actually, I'm in Johannesburg at the moment. You are um, in
0: Johannesburg, okay. Yes. Um, well, nice to have you on the show again. This is episode number two of the Eric and Cobus podcast, so we're just getting this off, and we're, in fact, just a quick little housekeeping note. We are going to be on... Uh, iTunes very soon this week. So this episode will be our first on iTunes. We've got three topics that we're going to kind of bounce around today. One is uh, Sino-Ethiopian relations and how it fits with Ethiopia's participation in the U.S. war against terrorism. We're also going to go to Zimbabwe, where it appears that China seems to be Robert Mugabe's last friend in the entire world. And finally, in honor of Monday's uh, elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're going to talk about Sino DRC relations. Okay, Cobus, let's get started with Ethiopia. Big couple weeks overall in Ethiopia, not only between the Chinese and the Ethiopians, but also with the United States. Um, you sent me a whole bunch of articles uh, relating to Ethiopia's loans that they're getting from the Chinese, vehicles they're getting from the Chinese, and drone bases that they're getting from the Americans.
1: Yes, it's very interesting. It seems kind of like, you know, seen from the Chinese and from the American perspective. Perspectives. Ethiopia seems to come out as two completely different countries, you know, um, and I was actually interested to hear what you think about what that kind of reveals of the two countries' agendas in the Horn of Africa.
0: Well, I think it shows that the Horn of Africa, particularly Ethiopia, is becoming increasingly important strategically just because of its geography. Uh, Ethiopia, you know, is a base now for U.S. drones going into both Somalia and now Yemen. So... You know, and this goes to this, you know, this larger issue we talked about in our last podcast about the role of the U.S. in Africa, which I contend is largely and more and more a military role, whereas the Chinese is largely a a commerce and development role. Um, And so with the Chinese sending vehicles and 100 million bucks to for development into, into Ethiopia, I don't know which sends the stronger message in terms of building a lasting partnership.
1: I, I really agree. I mean, the, you know, kind of trade between China and Ethiopia has increased I said, by, I think, something like two hundred percent over the last few years, and uh, you know, kind of it's, it's it's really striking. I mean, you know, kind of the the connections between China and Ethiopia are, as you said, largely largely economic. Um, in the case of America, there seems to be not much interest in in Ethiopia as as a market. Uh, you know, because it's mostly used as a kind of a, a way to kind of keep track of piracy, keep track of, of um, you know kind of Al Qaeda-related uh, terrorism groups in Somalia. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting for me. It seems like the you know kind of the, the relationship between China and Ethiopia seems a bit warmer to me.
0: Well, it's so funny that Ethiopia and East Africa seems to be the place where the Chinese and the Americans and Africans are intersecting most. Of course, we had the Shuzhou battle group, which was of course the Chinese. Uh, PLAN, the People's Liberation Army Navy, uh, most sophisticated battle group in their arsenal was off the coast of Somalian anti-piracy operations. This, of course, is a U.S. uh, military interest in fighting piracy. And now we're seeing uh, an intersection with the Chinese and the Americans in Ethiopia uh, over commerce in some senses, but certainly in military. And I, I wonder if the emerging Sino-Ethiopian relations in commerce will eventually lead to a greater Chinese military presence as we're starting to see in other African countries at the expense possibly of the Americans.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, kind of it seems like the, you know, kind of multilateral cooperation to, to try and curb piracy is might very well be the kind of point where that door gets opened. You know, kind of because uh, except for the Chinese warships that were, that uh, was off the coast of Libya a while ago, um it, it seems like this, you know, kind of the, the Horn of Africa would be the logical place for, for the Chinese military to be, if only to, to kind of protect their own tankers as, the, as they move past there.
0: Well, those that the, 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 the battle group that was off the coast of Libya was, in fact, the Shuzhou, which was the same battle group off the coast of uh, Ethiopia and in East Africa off the coast of Somalia. But as Somalia kind of falls further into a pit... Um, you know, you'll probably see a greater attraction of U.S. military assets in the region. You know, the you know Somalia has a particular uh, attraction to the United States. It's Black Hawk Down. It's one of the areas of defeat in the United States in Africa militarily. It was a sign of American retreat. And so to see the Chinese build up their influence in that region, it must be quite disconcerting for Americans, um, you know, just because they they do seem to think in some part that there's a sphere of influence question going on there, that they do have... Uh, interest there that extend beyond just the average uh, security.
1: I think so. Also, because the Americans and the Ethiopians' uh, relationship is so uh, historically so complicated, you know, kind of it's so interesting to see how Ethiopia was, for example, when Ethiopia entered Somalia a few years ago, um, they they did it with tacit approval of the U.S. And now uh, the U.S. obviously are, you know, as you mentioned, they they're building or they have built a drone base there. But the Ethiopian government is downplaying that relationship, you know, kind of so they don't want to be seen to be kind of friendly to the U.S. Well, meanwhile, uh, the relations go ahead.
0: No, no, go, go ahead, go ahead.
1: No no, I was just saying that meanwhile their relationship with China seen from the African perspective is not controversial at all. You know, kind of their relationship with America seems to be the really controversial one seen from the African continent.
0: Well, okay, so let's take a look at the news of the week. China is set to loan Ethiopia 100 million dollars which by Chinese you know lending standards is not actually that much in Africa. We've seen deals much much larger in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So 100 million dollars to help Uh, for a water supply project which again okay so which project are you going to be more proud of u.s drones taking off from your country or obviously a hundred million dollars in bringing fresh water to your people Uh, second thing is uh, they're also going to be donating a fleet of 90 vehicles to help oh no so the 90 vehicles are going to help the water supply project as well so all of that is tied around the water supply project so again i you know in terms of hearts and minds, I just don't understand why the Americans think they have the upper edge. Now, we're going to get to later in the show the downside of China's initiatives in Africa and how they're losing hearts and minds when we get to our you know segment on Robert Mugabe. But for now, this is the kind of program that really, really is effective diplomatically, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so funny how another one of the projects that was, uh, you know, kind of that was launched recently was, you know, a big new hospital built with Chinese money, named after an Ethiopian athlete who, you know, won medals in, in, in during the Beijing Olympic Games. You know, it's just it's so perfect. Um, yeah. The uh, I was I was wondering actually I want to ask your opinion. What do you think the Chinese are really getting out of this? You know, kind of because the, the you know, it's it's, it's so interesting that it seems like they're getting, in comparison with some other African states, the, um, Ethiopia at the moment doesn't seem to me to be really offering them much in terms of real kind of project products that the Chinese want.
0: Uh, a couple different things. I have not been to Ethiopia, but I've spoken with several people who have, so I don't have, in this particular case, firsthand evidence. However, from what I understand is that it is Chinese state-owned enterprises that are doing a lot of the construction work on airports, stadiums, and roads, which is what we're seeing across uh, across Africa. I suspect that there is a there's there's money involved in that. Secondly, um, I also think that the, uh, you know, Ethiopia geographically is so strategically important. And I think you're building influence. And it is one of the main, what I would call one of the main clusters of Chinese influence. So we see it in the DRC, you see it in Zambia, you see it in Johannesburg, and you're seeing it in Ethiopia. Those are kind of, you know, the, um, the main big points of interest for the Chinese. Sudan and Nairobi are another ones. But for, you know, Ethiopia is not a place where you're extracting enormous amounts of raw materials. But I think geopolitically, it's incredibly important. I think as the, the other part to remember always with China in Africa is its presence in the UN. And I think Ethiopia is one of the more aggressive and more active players in the UN. And, and China uses that to its great advantage
1: yeah yeah no that that really makes sense.
0: Um, yeah. we'll probably see a little bit of that u n leverage come to play uh, at the Durban Climate conference where the Chinese have been very aggressive behind the scene, organizing their African allies to support their position for uh, tougher standards on developed countries and and not necessarily having the developed countries' pressure. Uh, developing countries, and China's taking a lead in that. And I can see countries like Ethiopia lining up behind the Chinese uh, to rally. And the other kind of final point on this before we move on, Ethiopia is a very important player in the African Union. And, and China likes and in fact adores multilateral organizations like the African Union. So I would imagine that there's also a diplomatic role that the Chinese are leveraging from the Ethiopians in, in, in organizations like that. So, um, but it's not immediately obvious. So that's an excellent point. Now, So while the Chinese may be getting some excellent press out of their water supply projects in Ethiopia, uh, down the African coast in East Africa, in Zimbabwe, uh, for some reason they seem to be holding on to the relationship with Robert Mugabe tighter than anybody else's. Can you give any insight into why people like Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership so adores Robert Mugabe?
1: From what I can see, there's two big reasons. The first is an historical reason. You know, kind of the Chinese and the, the Zimbabweans go back a long, a long, a long time. You know, kind of uh, when from the era uh, during the Cold War, when both the Soviet Union and the Chinese were, were looking for influence in Africa. Um, so you know, kind of from from that time on, kind of ZANU PF uh, Mugabe's party was was staunchly pro Chinese, as far as I understand. But I think the mo the more important thing is that is 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 again one of resources. You know. Kind of Zimbabwe um, has massive deposits of platinum. It has huge deposits of diamonds, particularly a new field that's been found, that's recently been found. Um, and I think uh, you know, from from what from what I've heard, uh, you know, kind of the, this kind of influence counts very heavily for the Chinese, particularly in this relationship.
0: You know, but it's so contentious, and he is such a radioactive personality uh, that. And maybe the Chinese are just tone deaf to this type of publicity and they just don't care, which is what I suspect. Uh, or maybe the loyalty extends far beyond anything else for the Chinese. And, and, and I guess my question is, I, I, you're going to be my, my sounding board here, is the loyalty to Mugabe, do you think, or is the loyalty to ZANU-PF, or is the loyalty purely to the resources?
1: I think at the uh, at the moment, one of the biggest problems with, with Zimbabwe is that it's almost impossible to pick those three apart. Um, you know, kind of uh, Mugabe. Until Mugabe, you know, as South Africans tend to put it, until Mugabe falls over, you know, kind of Mugabe is Zanu PF, um, and and you know, kind of and even though kind of Zanu PF have been, uh, it has been grooming people to kind of to, to take over. Mugabe isn't doesn't seem to be one to, uh, you know. In a, you know, kind of hand over any kind of uh, any kind of influence to anyone else is really clinging to it, um, and you know, kind of without influence in Zanu uh, you know, you don't the the minerals are, are off the table. So, so I think in in reality, it's uh, you know, it comes down to basically the same thing until uh, until there's some kind of radical reorganization of power in Zimbabwe or until Mugabe passes away, and, uh, uh, which everyone Mugabe is kind hemisphere. of
0: old though, isn't he? I mean, he's what 83. Yes, yes.
1: I think I think he's actually almost, like, I think he's 84, as far as I understand. Okay, so 84 um,
0: years old, interesting.
1: But, you know, it's, it's like he's, <laughs> everyone here gets the feeling that he's going to go on to like 120. You know, okay. kind of, um, uh, it's, like he's, it, it's like he never goes away.
0: Yeah, the assholes never uh, die
1: young. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, um,
0: but the news this week that came out, and uh, you know, that would be interesting to get your reaction to, in part because this seems to be an annual event, um Zimbabwe took delivery according to the Southern Africa Report a Defense uh, Defense Monitoring Group um, 20,000 AK47s and small arms that went that finally made it into Zimbabwe and I say finally in part because if you recall uh, I think it was last year uh, in a very very high profile instance a ship loaded with Chinese weapons was turned away from Zimbabwe and and this is really goes to the heart of you know, the criticism of China in Africa that it doesn't get the same type of scrutiny for its weapon sales in this part of the world than, say, the Americans or others do. Now, the Americans, of course, are significantly larger vendors of weapons, not only to African states, but everywhere else. The Chinese say they have a legitimate right to do business in this space, and Zimbabwe has a legitimate right to defend itself and to buy weapons from lots of different countries. But it seems that the Chinese weapon sales uh, always come to the fore in when we talk about Zimbabwe, how important are these weapon sales, in your opinion?
1: I think they. I think they are important. I think they're particularly symbolically very important. You know, kind of um, the. As far as I understand, the next Zimbabwean election is next year, and um, you know the. Uh, the, the previous few elections have been very violent, um, and and ZANU's um, position as a kind of intimidator, you know, as the, its psychological position, um, kind of even like, long before the election, real kind of before the real campaigning starts, is is crucial to its power. Um, so I think you know, kind of the news leaking um, about about this arms deal, I I would be surprised if that was an accident. Um, you know, kind of it, it it seems that in in ZANU's uh, you know kind of it, it seems in their favor to to leak this news news now. Because they're in a constant, um, constant campaign to try and weaken the opposition. Um, So you know, yes, I I I think um, you know, kind of, you know, kind of getting that logic out there, like we are supported by China no matter what. You know, kind of, I think that sends a very strong internal message within
0: Zimbabwe. You know, this relationship that goes back decades also goes back decades in Zambia, and we've heard it again and again, even in places like South Africa with the ANC. They, you know, this old Cold War communist uh, you know, era, uh, these ties are deep and they run very deep. And in so many ways, they seem to define the current state of relations. And I say this in part because as we've been hearing a growing number of analysts in the West, and we saw on Capitol Hill earlier this month in the United States, trying to define this relationship between the Chinese and Africans purely around mercantilist terms doesn't seem like it does it justice, in part because there are very strong historical and political ties as well. Um, you know, and it's a part of it that I honestly don't understand quite as well, because I look at it as, you know, China is much more of a mercantilist opportunist. But apparently, um, you know, they're sticking by when Xi Jinping calls Robert Mugabe an old friend that has a lot of meeting.
1: I think it's also because Robert Mugabe is a master at working these relationships and these kind of emotional, you know, kind of connections they have, these resonances they have. Um, he is, you know, he's one, one of his, his favorite lines is saying that NATO or like the kind of what he calls the Anglo-Saxon kind of, uh, you know, kind of alliance in the world, i.e., you know, the UK and America, um, is trying to overthrow him or assassinate him or take over Zimbabwe or force some kind of regime change. He, he, he always falls back on that line um so it was very very interesting to see what he was saying to to she um kind of he was you know kind of he was he was saying that you know kind of the uh, um russia and china is is the uh, you know are the only kind of bulwarks that you know africa has against being kind of recolonized by the anglo-saxon west um you know kind of which sounds like craziness, you know, kind of from outside of Zimbabwe but I think it's, it has some real resonance particularly in ZANU-PF's uh, strongholds of Zimbabwe which are the rural areas. Um, you know, kind of uh, ZANU-PF is to a certain extent a, kind of a peasant organization um, and you know, kind of rural rural uh, farmers, small farmers, you know have, are, 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 were the people who traditionally supported him and it seems to me that, you know, kind of that is a message that's kind of is to a certain extent directed at them.
0: Well, it'd be interesting to see, and this is- a test case in some senses for the Iranians and Syrians and others who are being isolated by the West right now, can Zimbabwe, who largely seems to be going down, you know, the crapper, you you know, both for its own domestic economic reasons, but also the punishing sanctions that are coming its way from the West, can they survive cuddled up next to Russia and China? And, And is maybe the Chinese relationship is enough to revitalize the, the, Zamb- the Zimbabwean economy, or enough of the Zimbabwean economy. I, it doesn't strike me that that's really going to be the case, but it's certainly an interesting question to kind of take a look at.
1: I think it's also another another issue is it it it, it raises the question of, of how successful Western sanctions actually are, um, and to which extent they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. Because I think what you see in the Zimbabwe case is that in you know kind of where is you know the, the the logic of sanctions would be that it would weaken Mugabe's government and, and you know kind of make it easier for people to stand up against them. I think to a certain extent he's done exactly the opposite. The, the the Zimbabwean people are completely beaten down. um, Mugabe is strong, you know, kind of he's actually not affected uh, by the sanctions. He's probably the only person in Zimbabwe who is really not actually that that affected by the sanctions. And what has happened is rather than people kind of mobilizing against him, is that some of them have just fled so what you have is that there's some some people uh, estimate that almost half of zimbabwe's population actually now live in, in south africa illegally you know kind of so the country is kind of losing its people but the one thing they're not losing is mugabe
0: well and again to, to bring up your point on sanctions Uh, Without the Chinese and the Russians participating in the sanctions, it doesn't feel like it can ever work. And this has been tested over and over again from, we saw these again in Iran, we've seen it in Cuba, we see it in Syria now, without the Russian and Chinese support, any kind of sanctions movement doesn't work. In fact, I think, you know, there's this fantasy in the West of sanctions, you know, being the the tool that brought, you know, the the apartheid movement to an end, and, you know, bringing down, you know, the, the white South African, you know, apartheid regimes. Uh, And it really, in that case, it worked, but it hasn't seemed to work since then, you know, from Burma all the way now to Zimbabwe. So excellent point. Speaking of kind of, you know, corrupt leadership, we're going to kind of go a little bit into Central Africa now over into the DRC, where there are highly anticipated elections that are getting underway. Uh, On Monday, voters go to what I guess loosely can be called the polls, um, anybody who's spent any amount of time in the DRC has a, a, a very high level of suspicion that there's something resembling a democratic vote that will take place. Nonetheless, uh, Joseph Kabila is expected to uh, to win. Etchenshchakadi is w- launching what is now a kind of ritual opposition campaign against uh, the Kabila family, and it, it seems to be it's a little bit like Charlie Brown and Lucy, where every time he <laughs> he kind of you know comes up short, so. The question of what role do you see the Chinese playing in, in the DRC, and if, are they playing any role in this particular election? And that's something I've been looking for, and I haven't seen much that comes up. They seem to be keeping a very, very low profile, but I've always wondered if the presence of the Chinese has been a force that gives Kabila confidence to be even more bold, more corrupt, more authoritarian, because he knows the Chinese are in his corner.
1: It, uh, you know, that, that, that's my kind of, uh, my feeling as well is that, you know, the, the Chinese don't really particularly have to do anything specifically. It's more their, their very presence allows Kabila to be able to play them off against, against the traditional donor countries and the IMF, um, you know, kind of, and, and the fact that China is, is anxious to kind of gain influence in the IMF means that, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of muddies the situation a little bit, I think. Um, and, and, you know, um, it, it allows Kabila this kind of room to maneuver, you know, kind of with so occasionally working with the IMF, then you know, kind of playing them off against China, kind of getting, you know, kind of trying to, to gain as much as he can from all sides.
0: And, and the DRC is really a model in some cases of how these infrastructure projects are being played into uh, local domestic politics. So in the DRC, there was always what they called, you know, in French, the cinq Chantier, which are the big five construction projects, and Kabila had put so much pressure on the Chinese to complete these projects in advance, both of the anniversary of uh, the end of Belgian colonialism in the Congo, but also in the run-up to these elections, so that he could demonstrate to say, look, I've brought you roads, I've brought you new stadiums, I've brought you new hospitals and whatnot, and all the things that the Chinese have built. The Chinese, in turn, have complained that they've been under such incredible pressure from the Kabila government to complete these under political deadlines, that that kind of leads to the degradation of quality that we've also heard from so many Africans who say that the poor quality of Chinese roads and equipment and whatnot. So in some ways, the DRC is a perfect capsule for all of this. This is so
1: interesting to hear that. I actually also wanted to ask you, um, you know, the DRC is generally listed as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Um, how do you feel how successful has the Chinese been about getting their money in and getting it getting their money out again, getting their loan their loan payments actually paid, mm-hmm. uh or getting their, you know, their loans repaid. Um uh, or, or are Are there money kind of getting lost in the same way that aid money has gotten lost in in the DRC for so long
0: No, in part because aid money doesn 't go directly. aid money goes directly to the to the elites, and that 's where the money gets siphoned off in corruption, and the Chinese oftentimes contain the production cycle within themselves, so it 's much harder to get that money out of the Chinese ecosystem. so the Chinese will bring in their own construction teams they 'll bring in their own labor, and that 's in part to insulate themselves from the corruption that is so pervasive in places like the DRC. So just to give you some context, the DRC, as listed, I think it's by Transparency International, and somebody will correct me on this, um, as literally the second most corrupt place on the planet, only ahead of Afghanistan to do business. So it's, it's by far one of the most difficult places in the world to do business. The Chinese have actually found it more difficult in the DRC than many other African countries, and you're starting to see a retrenchment out of the DRC for, for a lot of Chinese projects. So the most notable one that we saw this year was in the telecom space. Uh, ZTE, I think it was, bailed out and sold to, uh, to, the, to Orange and French Telecom some of their assets in the DRC. Uh, they just couldn't make enough money there. So, But we're seeing on the mining side... The Chinese with the, the 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 sickle mines deal, and there's a lot of experts out there who, again, are going to correct me on this, um, seem to be uh, pers- you know persevering and moving along, but probably in the consumer side. Given that there is so much corruption and so much, it's a country that just is really not really a country. It's just, you know, a geographic boundary with, you know, lots of rival groups and provinces that don't necessarily integrate very well. But the DRC is a brutal place to do business. And, and yet the Chinese on the large level are struggling. The one area to watch the Chinese are in Kinshasa in particular is on the local immigrant level. And there you're seeing a huge growth in small trade, small to medium enterprises that are emerging in Kinshasa and in Lumumbashi as well. And that's one area to watch. But maybe on the big major state, the SOE side, I, I, I think they're running into some problems.
1: It it sounds like you know it would be so much so fascinating to hear what those uh, recent Im- Chinese immigrants' experiences are like. You know, what is it like for them to actually move there and live there, and how do they make a living? It's fascinating.
0: Well, I've done a profile of one. Uh, Meet Mr. Chen is what I called it. It's on uh, my old blog, China Talking Points. Uh, so if you search for Meet Mr. Chen on China Talking Points, he's a small businessman in uh, in Kinshasa who started up you know an import export business and and kind of did a little bit of a profile. But it is absolutely fascinating. He made his way overland. He landed first in Goma in the east, right in the middle of the war, and made his way <laughs> overland. And now you got to imagine, you know, this is a country the size of Western Europe with no real roads that connect the, the east to the west, and made his way overland and starts, started up a business in, in Kinshasa, kind of selling trinkets to local people, and, and seems to be making a go of it. So, and multiply that by thousands in Kinshasa. Um, probably thousands of Chinese immigrants are there, if not you know it 's hard to tell there is no precise number. I get always requests from from journalists there saying, "Well, how many are actually in Kinshasa and there there is no there is no tally. No one checks in, no one monitors you know so Kinshasa is a city of eleven million people, largest french speaking city in the world. No way to check how many Chinese are there so but it is one of the most interesting places to watch the Chinese and it shows just how effective Chinese can be in very, very adverse conditions. So imagine if you can kind of survive there, Johannesburg, Luanda, some Nairobi, some of these other cities which have more stability, you know, that's going to be a cakewalk for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think so. And I mean, even even like, like you see in, in many African countries, people Chinese people moving to the most rural areas, rural parts of the country like in, in South Africa you you know if you travel through the Northern Cape province which is South Africa's most rural province you find little Chinese shops everywhere and uh, yeah you know kind of it's, it's it's amazing for me the kind of uh, perseverance that they're showing in this case
0: and, and that's probably a trend that's going to continue uh, continue to, to develop and one that we will actually continue to watch in future podcasts Cobus, thank you so much again we're going to be back in one to maybe two weeks we're kind of playing this by ear Cobus, where can people find you on the internets on Twitter in particular
1: the cat sat on the I'm on Twitter at that that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E.
0: And you can find me at E-Olander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, and I'm tweeting four to five times a day on China and Africa-type stories, the top stories. Uh, and then also you can find this podcast on iTunes, finally. We'll be up this week on, uh, on, uh, on iTunes, and we really welcome your feedback. So we're just starting this thing out. If you've got topic ideas, if you've got guest ideas, if you'd like to come on the show, Uh, if you, you know, really just hate what we say, uh, let us know. You can tweet it. You can email us through any of our various social media accounts, um, but you can definitely get in touch with us. That'll do it for this week. I'm Eric Olander in Paris. Thanks so much for listening.